This is a message from Grace Church, located in Frisco, Texas, a suburb of Dallas-Fort Worth. Grace Church is affiliated with Sovereign Grace Ministries. The Grace Church website is gracechurchfrisco.org. The speaker for this message is Craig Cabanis, the senior pastor of Grace Church. We're in the Gospel of Mark this morning. Mark chapter 12. Uh, Let me tell you where we are, kind of where we're going, and uh, then uh, I want to read a scripture, the scripture passage we're looking at, and then we'll pray, and then we will uh, work our way through the passage this morning. We're in a series that we're calling Prepare for the Square, and uh, the idea behind that is that um, we are planning and uh, preparing, God willing, to relocate as a church family uh, to Frisco Square. So if you're new, you may not realize this, um, but we uh, were given land um, at the heart of Frisco Square, right by behind City Hall, just south of City Hall, kind of catty-cornered there. And uh, at the same time we were given that land, we purchased this building sort of as a temporary spot for us so that we weren't in a school uh, like we had been for years, setting up and taking down and, and all that goes on uh, with that. So we've been here uh, for about two and a half years, but we are now making some tangible steps uh, towards, uh, towards moving. And so we're talking about that somewhat in this series. Uh, we met with our, the leaders, the small group leaders of the church on Friday night and laid out some of the details for that. And we're doing that with the whole church on on the 14th or the 17th of October, we're doing two congregational meetings, and uh, we're going to sort of lay out some of the details for that. And then on October 28th, when this series will be done by then, uh, we're going to give uh, everyone in the, chance, in the church a chance, an opportunity to participate in helping to uh, fund, that, uh, fund that mission of building uh, that building over there in Frisco Square. So we'll lay out all the details. Also, realizing that I can't do this in sermons and probably won't be able to cover everything in congregational meetings, I'm going to do a number of small, short, probably looking into my computer screen type of video deals and uh, put up on the city so you can look at a, at a few things there as well. It's just a way to talk to you uh, without cutting into the teaching of the Scripture every week to do that. So I'll probably do that. You can look for that uh, on, uh, on the city. So so prepare for the square. This, the idea, though, is ultimately not um, preparing to build a building. The idea is that God is preparing us as a people to be faithful to steward the opportunity and mission and responsibility that he gives us as a people. So we sort of looked at that opportunity and said, wow, if we were to be there, what kind of church do we think the Lord would want us to be? And then we backed up and said, well, it has nothing about being there. It has to do with what does the scripture say, regardless of where we meet, what kind of church do we want to be? So whether we stay here, go somewhere else, whatever, we think that's where we're going. That's our plan. But regardless, what kind of a church do we want to be? And begin to think about if I could speak metaphorically and not physically here, we think we want to be the type of church that are not people who are tucked away in the warehouse district of town, but we want to be a kind of people that are shouting the gospel in the hubbub at the heart of town. So regardless of where we 
uh, where we meet on Sundays, we want to be people that are proclaiming the gospel in our neighborhoods, in our workplaces, wherever we are. So as we began to think about what it would be like to be there, we began to think, Lord, we think you want to stretch us and change us. And so this becomes about you building us to be a people for your glory and not us constructing a facility. Very much so. We want to be changed. So last week we talked about mission. That's what I'm doing today as well, to talk about the mission of the church. So we looked at the Great Commission. We looked at uh, Matthew 28, and we said our mission is to make disciples. That is the mission of the church, that we are to go, that we are to preach the gospel, that we are to baptize those who believe, and that we are then to teach them to obey all that Jesus commands us. That's the great commission. We're to make disciples, and we're to do that together. Making disciples is a team sport. It is not an individual activity, and so we do that together as a people. The community of disciples is the church. In the book of Acts, it says that the disciples were first called Christians at Antioch, so there was a history of being called disciples before the name Christian ever came up or was ever used of the church. So a disciple is a student, a learner, a follower of Jesus who believes in what Jesus has done for us in his death, burial, and resurrection and has received new life and is now an adherent of Christ, one submitted to him and a follower of him. So that's what a disciple is, and we're called to make them by God's grace. And uh, today I want to look at what is the heart of a disciple. Last week was the Great Commission. This is what's called the Great Commandment oftentimes. And I'm going to look at that, the heart of a disciple in Mark 12, beginning in verse 28. And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another, and seeing that he had answered them well, asked him, meaning asked Jesus, which commandment is the most important of all? Jesus answered, the most important is this, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There's no greater commandment than these. There's no commandment greater than these. And the scribe said to him, you are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one and there is no other besides him. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding and with all the strength and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared ask him any more questions. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this passage, and we thank you for the calling to be disciples of Christ, to be followers, to be believers who love you and who love others, and we pray that you would speak to us through this passage today. God, I pray specifically for anyone in this room who does not know you, that they might meet you today, that they might be touched by your love. God, would you pour your love out and touch those who need you today? And for those who know you, we pray that we would be touched by your love today as well, and that we would have a clear vision of what we are to be, what you're calling us to be, and a big hope that you would fulfill your purposes in us. So we we submit ourselves to you, and we say, Master, would you teach us? Would you direct us, shepherd? Would you protect us and guide us and feed us? King, would you rule over us today? And Savior, would you pour out your grace and mercy on us? In the Spirit, we pray, and we ask these things in Jesus' name. 
Amen. Well, here's what's happening in Mark. Uh, Jesus has journeyed uh, to the Passover for the last time. So this is the last week of his life. And what's happening in this section is he is sort of getting a volley of questions from people that are challenging him in different ways. And now he gets this question from a scribe. A scribe was a, uh, an expert in the law. So there's the Jewish law, the Hebrew law, which we find in our Old Testament. And so this expert in the law comes up to Jesus and he asks him this question. He says to him in verse 28, which commandment is the most important of all? He's asking a very good question. And uh, Jesus answers it on on the surface. And and it wasn't an unusual question. Um, Evidently, in Jesus' day, the various rabbis would sort of debate and dialogue about what is the most important commandment. And what is the most important thing about following God, knowing God, obeying God? So that that is not an unusual question. And it, it usually wasn't a theoretical question either. The people who asked this, like a scribe, they were not just wanting to know what a particular rabbi thought theoretically. It wasn't just an empty theological question. But the scribes and the Pharisees were very concerned with obedience, I mean, they get slammed, and and the Pharisees necessarily have plenty to be slammed for. Um, But at least the way they began, not in the time of Jesus, they were pretty messed up. But at least the way they began was they were really adherents to the Scripture. They wanted to obey God, and it got really messed up along the way. But that was the origination of the Pharisees, was to obey the Scripture. And so you can see that, that tradition, and you can see that heart saying, what is most important of all, because he is wanting to know what's the most important thing to God, but probably he also wants to know what is the measuring line so I can sort of measure myself and see how I'm doing. Normally, the kind of question had to do with performance. So let me measure how I am doing with God. Let me understand how I stand before the Lord. Let me understand how how I am with God based on what God requires of me. So tell me what's the most important thing, and I can see how I'm doing, or I can do that. So there's that kind of idea behind this. He wants to measure up to the standards and expectations of God, and so you need to know what's the priority so he's not wasting his time on lesser matters. And so Jesus answered to him, It is clear, it is succinct, and it is totally understandable. Basically, it's this. Love God, love people. That's what Jesus says. In Matthew, when Jesus says this, he says, the entire law and the prophets take your whole Old Testament, essentially, and it all hangs on these two points. Love God and love people. That's what he tells him. First of all, love God. Look at how he describes that. Verse 29, the most important commandment, is this, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. So he quotes, Jesus goes back to Deuteronomy 6. This guy knows the law, and he says, what's the most important? He goes back to Deuteronomy 6. It's called the Shema, because Shema is is the verb to hear. So they hear, O Israel, the the word Shema, the Jews called it the Shema, and they would recite this every morning and every evening. So not only would the scribe know that, he just said it that morning and just recited it before God. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God. uh, I'm sorry, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God. Yeah, the Lord is one. So that Deuteronomy 6 communicated two things. God is one. There is one God, and, and, and ultimately he is the unique God, the only God. But also he is our God, the Lord 
our God, the Lord is one. So every day the Hebrew would remind himself or herself that we are in relationship with God. There is one God and he is our God. We are the people of God. God has made a covenant with us, Israel. God has loved us. God has reached out to us and made us a people of his own. And so, because the, this is all Deuteronomy 6, the uh, hero Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God. So that's, he's quoting the, a single verse there. And so, he's saying that because God is our God, because God, uh, we are his people, our response is to be loved to God. Now notice, it doesn't say our response is sort of religious duty, religious service, or empty duty, that because we are God's people, our response is just to fulfill some obligations. That's not what it says. It says our response is to love God, and it is a, well, it is an all-inclusive kind of a love. You shall love the Lord your God, he says all four times, with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. So, the answer to the scribe, what should you be focusing on? How should you be measuring yourself? What does God require of you? Well, here it is. Love God with all your being. Every faculty of your mind, every part of your affections, every ounce of your strength. What should I be focusing on? Returning love to God is what Jesus says. So the the scribe considers that, he hears that, and Jesus kind of gives him a bar, kind of gives him a measure. Here's what God expects. Now, is, is Jesus lowering the bar here? That's kind of a question I've had when I've read that. I mean, is he saying to the guy, look, in the Old Testament, there's all these laws, there's all these rituals. I mean, you've got you to be concerned about what kind of fabric you're wearing, what kind of food you're eating, what kind of, what do you do on the Sabbath? I mean, there's all these kind of, you've got to do stuff with killing and sacrificing animals. So is he saying, look, you know, that was kind of Old Testament. I'm a kinder, gentler God. We just, just love. Is that what he's saying? Is he kind of just saying, just love. All you have to do is just love. That sounds so easy. I love God. So I must be right with God. I love God. I can do that. Is he, is he giving him something manageable to measure himself by? Is he giving him something achievable? In other words, is he saying, if you want to have a relationship with God, just love him? Well, let me ask you this. Which is more achievable? Which is more manageable? To pass on ham or to love God with all your heart? I mean, which really is more doable? To rest on the Sabbath day, or to have all of my mind, all of the time, engaged with love towards God. What's easier? I mean, just in terms of practically, what's easier? Slitting the throat of a lamb and killing it down at the temple? Or loving God with all of my heart so that all my decisions, all my ideas, all of my plans reflect a hundred percent love for God. I mean, what's really easier? Showing up at a festival three times a year. It's really a party anyway. So coming to a national party three times a year, is that more difficult? Or is it more difficult to love God with every ounce of my strength. See, he's not coming to this scribe and giving him a manageable, doable plan so that he can have a relationship with God. He is showing him in the first place, he is showing him his need 
of grace. What he's really doing is he is loving him by showing him his need of Jesus himself. And then he gives him a second commandment. Now, the guy only asks for one, but Jesus goes ahead and doubles it. Verse 31, the second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So there he goes to Leviticus 19. And he quotes that verse. So what's the most important? You love God with all your strength. And here's this other one. You love others as much as you love yourself. So it's presumed that we love ourselves in that passage. And so he's saying, love others, care for others like you do care for yourself. That is his point. Um, And it makes sense because if you love God, then you also should love those created in the image of God. You should love what God creates. You should love people. So he lays that out for him. Now, I love the scribe's response. I don't know quite how to take this. It sounds patronizing to me when you tell God this. You are right, teacher. Now, maybe he didn't mean it as patronizing. He obviously probably didn't see Jesus as God. But I don't think I want to be patting God on the back and saying, good gold star for Yahweh. I mean, I don't really think I want to be doing that sort of thing. Jesus, God incarnate, at a boy. But that's how it reads. He's sort of saying, okay, uh, you know, he's sort of saying here, you, you, that is, you are right. It's like saying, excellent. You have truly said that he is one and there is no one besides him. And to love him with all the heart, verse 33, and with all the understanding, with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. So what he does is he really gets something here. He he says, yeah, I get that. Appropriate religion, true religion is to have a heart for God and a heart for people. It's not just fulfilling religious duties. He says that. I know it's, you're right. That is more important than burnt offerings and sacrifices, presumably without love. He's saying that it is more important to love God and respond to God with our heart than to do religious things. So he's agreeing with what Jesus is saying. And then what Jesus says is, It's pretty amazing. Verse 34, Jesus saw that he answered and he said, you are not far from the kingdom of God. So this guy is not in the kingdom, but he's close. He's not saved, but he's close. He's not in relationship appropriately with God, but he's close. I wonder if there's anybody like that here today. I don't know how many people are in the room, but I can almost guarantee there's some of one like that here today, given this many people in a room, that we sort of understand some of the basics, that we have some insight, and that we are not far from the kingdom. Well, why is he close but not in? Here's why. Because he doesn't respond when Jesus gives him the the command. He doesn't respond in a way that reflects he sees his need for Jesus. That's the problem. He doesn't respond in a way that shows he sees his need for a savior. He says, oh, teacher, you are right. The appropriate response would be, oh, savior, have mercy on me. There's a difference. Patting Jesus on the back and respecting his teaching versus saying what you've said is so true. And when I think about that, what must I do to be saved? How can I be saved? forgiven. How can I be saved? He is close, but not there. See, he's, he's basically saying knowing the commandments and even, even knowing that the commandments are to come from the heart are not enough. 
Knowing what God requires, even if we know it's not just going to church, it's not just doing good deeds, it's not just reading your Bible, it it is a changed heart. Just knowing that is not enough. That's close, but not in. In is saying, I can't change my heart. In is saying, I could never love God enough to be acceptable. In is saying, I could never love my neighbor enough to be saved. In is saying, I need a Savior. I need a Savior to forgive me for where I failed and to empower me to live that kind of life. I need the Holy Spirit to enable me to live that kind of life. Because the, the, the reality is that none of us have fully obeyed these commands. None of us have loved God with all our being, all of our lives. None of us have loved our neighbors as ourselves. None of us have. And this is why Jesus comes. This is why Jesus comes. Because if we have, we don't need Jesus. We don't need Jesus. Out of love, Jesus comes to forgive us our failure and to enable us to love God. He comes to forgive us our failure where we have not perfectly loved God and love one another. That is the gospel message. This past week, um, I received a mass email, and a number of you did. I don't know how many of you, but a number of you received the same email. And in this email, the author was critiquing uh, various teachings of our church. And most significantly was a critique of our understanding of the gospel. And it just caused me to pause. It caused a lot of things, but it caused me to pause And think about this. It's what's happening in this text. How important it is that we understand what the Bible teaches about the gospel. There is nothing more important that you can know. There is nothing more important than you can believe than what the scripture teaches about the gospel. And in this passage in particular, we are seeing this desire, this calling to love God. This requirement to love God. But the scripture says that we ultimately never could fulfill that. Be perfect even as your heavenly father is perfect, the scripture says. None of us have have ever done that. And so because of the love of God, God loves us enough to come and provide a way for us to receive forgiveness of our sins through the work of Jesus on the cross And then he gives us the mission of taking that gospel and sharing that good news with others. So the reason the gospel and understanding the gospel is so important is because we must understand the love of God. We must understand the love of God in the mission of Christ and what Jesus does for us. And then this whole series is about mission. We must understand that message and how we take it to others so that our hearts are motivated by the love of God. And we are motivated by the love of God, loving him and loving others. What God does for us in the gospel, this is why gospel clarity is so vital, what God does for us in the gospel establishes our relationship with him and defines our mission to others. Look at this scripture. This is a scripture that talks about the love of God and what Jesus has specifically done for us and our mission to others. 1 John 4. 1 John 4. The passage says, Beloved, let us love one another. Now, why am I reading this? Because this is a passage on love, love for God and love for others. It's also a passage on the nature of the gospel. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever 
loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us. That God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love. Not that we have loved God. See, that's what the scribe needed to hear. That's what he needed to understand. That he couldn't ultimately love God. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Now, here's what this scripture is making so clear to us. It is making the point that God is love. And God is not just theoretical love, but God has manifest his love among us. Can we, can we leave that up? Can I ask? I just want to leave that up for a few minutes because I'm going to refer to a number of the verses here. God sent his son into the world. So it says, this passage says, so that we might live through him. So God doesn't just say and announce I'm a loving God. God manifests his love. That means love shows up. God manifests his love, how? In this, he sent his son into the world so that we might live through him. We're spiritually dead. God sends Jesus to bring us to life. And he sends his son to reveal his love. Sent his only son so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us. So Jesus comes, he sends his son to show the love of God. How does Jesus show the love of God? Well, in a ton of ways, he shows the love of God by caring for the outcast. He shows the love of God by delivering people who are inhabited by demons. He shows the love of God by reaching out and showing mercy to those who are under the, 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 uh, the confines of pharisaical legalism, releasing them from legalism. He, he, um, he, he heals people that are suffering from illness. He reveals God through his teaching. So he shows the love of God, well, all day, every day. But this is what 1 John says. Here is how specifically God shows his love. How? Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us. This is at the very bottom, the end of the passage. And sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. This is how God shows his love. You want to know how do I see God, the first, the love of God, the first place we go is here. He sent Jesus to be the propitiation for our sins. Propitiation is a word, it's a sacrifice word. And it means a sacrifice that absorbs, that receives the wrath of God. Look it up. It is a word that receives the, it is a sacrifice that receives the wrath of God, a sacrifice that receives the judgment of God. What he's saying is that Jesus comes, here's how God shows his love. Jesus comes and dies as a sacrifice receiving the judgment that is due us. That is a propitiation. Now, why in the world would Jesus come why in the world would Jesus come and receive the judgment of God that is due us? Because he didn't sin. Now see, this is how we understand the love of God here. He didn't sin. Here's what 2 Corinthians 5 says. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake he made him, the Father made Jesus, he made him to be sin who knew no sin 
so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So here's how God shows his love. Jesus comes, he lives a perfect life, but in his death, he who knew no sin came to be sin. He did not sin, Jesus did not sin, but our sins are put on him. He is treated uh, as one who is a sinner because God made him to be sin so that we might become the righteousness of Christ. So there, there is an exchange. That is the love of God. So why, does, why is Jesus a propitiating sacrifice? Or some translations say an atoning sacrifice. So why is Jesus making atonement for us if he's innocent? Why is Jesus paying the penalty for our sins if he's innocent? Because God made him to be sin, you see, so that we could be the righteousness of God. And this is not a new idea. Do you know this is not even a New Testament idea? The Old Testament foretells that God would ultimately express his love in this. The Old Testament foretells the work of Jesus, that he would die for our sins. So you see, the issue is not, how do I be right with God? Just love God with all your heart and you're right with him. No, that's not how you're right with God. We haven't loved God with all our hearts. So how is our sin going to be atoned for? We have not loved our neighbor as ourselves. So who is going to pay the penalty for our sin? Enter Jesus. That is what Isaiah 53 says. Look at these words from Isaiah 53. But he was pierced for our transgressions. That's a sin. Jesus sins. Jesus is pierced. Why? For our sins. That's why he's dying on the cross. He was crushed for our iniquities. That's a propitiating sacrifice. Upon him was the chastisement. The word means punishment. Upon him was the punishment that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. And we have turned everyone to his own way. That's sin. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. The Lord has laid our sins on Jesus. He who knew no sin came to be sin. That is what the scripture, he is a propitiating sacrifice. Why is this so important? Because if we don't get this, we don't get forgiveness of sins. We don't know God. We don't receive eternal life. And secondly, it is what is at the heart of what is going on here that we cannot just fulfill the commandments of God and make ourselves right with him. Why is he, you are not far from the kingdom, but not in the kingdom? Because he is not asking how will my sins be forgiven? How can I be right with God? He's just commending the teaching that these are the commandments. Jesus dies as our substitute. And here's what's at stake there in propitiation. It's the demonstration of the love of God. Think about this is the astounding love of God. God is holy. If you're not a Christian, please hear this because this is, this is how you can receive new life. This is the message that will change everything for you. God is holy and God must punish sin because he is holy. A holy God will punish sin, will condemn sinners who reject him. And rejected sinners will spend eternity in hell. That is what the Bible teaches very clearly. So a holy God must judge sin. So what the holy God does is he comes and he pays the price. He pours out the judgment he receives his own judgment. He declares the sentence and he pays the penalty. He pours out the punishment and he receives the own, his own punishment. That's what God does so that we don't have to. 
That is the love of God. God loves you because God did for you what you never could do for yourself. You can't love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. You can't love your neighbor as yourself. So you are in trouble with God, and so am I. And so what God did to reveal his mercy, to reveal his love, to reveal his grace, is he came into the mess of it all and rescued us. He didn't give us an example He didn't say, I'm doing this. Jesus isn't saying in his ministry, I'm doing this. I'm loving God with all my heart, soul, mind, strength. Why don't you? That's not what he's doing. If you are drowning, you don't need someone to come out and give some swim lessons. Well, here's an example. Just do this. Take a breath. Put it up. Well, you want to start with the backstroke? You don't need an example. You need someone to pull you out of the water. And And Jesus comes and he pulls us out of the water at the expense of his own life. We're drowning and he drowns. He takes the death so that we might have life. How does he do that? God pours out judgment on sin. God receives his own judgment. God the Father sends the Son. God the Son willingly dies to pay the price that you and I owe. That is the gospel. That is our message. That is the picture of the love of God. Well, how important is that? There's nothing more important. This is what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5. I delivered to you as of first importance. Underline, bold, huge font, sirens, whatever it takes to get our attention. I delivered to you as of first importance what I received, that Jesus died for our sins. It is my personal sin that Jesus died for. And is buried and is raised to new life so that by my faith in him, all of my sins are wiped out. All of my sins are forgiven. And I have new life. The first John passage, which we had up there, here's what it said a few verses later in 1 John 4, 19. We love because he first loved us. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. If you don't know Christ, that message comes to you not as good news. That comes as bad news because you and I don't do that. Here's the good news. Jesus did that. He did love God. He did love others. And Jesus died for sinners who didn't love God and didn't love others. That's the good news. And when we believe that, then his spirit comes inside of us and he gives us the power to love God and love others. So for the Christian, this is possible. What we're reading is possible. Not only possible, it's like expected. It happens. It's reality. You love God. If you're a Christian here today, you love God. If you're a Christian here today, you love others. Not flawlessly, not perfectly, You know, not without any error, without any selfishness, of course not. We still battle our flesh until we die. But this is the fundamental posture of the heart of a disciple. Jesus rescues us. Jesus loves us. He first loves us so that we can love him and we can love others. We love why? Because he first loved us. When the love of God, when we see the love of God in Christ, it grabs our heart. He comes in and gives us a new life. He makes all things new. And then we look and we say, now as a disciple of Jesus, as a follower of Jesus, I want to love God. As a follower of Jesus, I want to love others. This is the heart of discipleship. Impossible for a person without the Spirit of God. Completely doable for a person with the Spirit of God. 
not flawlessly. I'm not speaking of some kind of perfectionism. That's the last time I'm going to build that fence. I think I've done it three times. But so that you don't misunderstand, I'm not saying that once you receive Christ, you live perfectly and love God always and love others always. That's not true. But I am saying that is the calling of a disciple. We love because he first loved us, and it is empowered by the love of God. And we love others, empowered by the love of God. That's what that first, that's what we read in 1 John. The 1 John passage said, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. So how are we going to do this thing he's telling the scribe? Scribe, here's the most important thing, love God and love others. How is that possible? It's possible because a loving Savior gave his life for us. It's possible because the love of God was manifest before us. It's possible because the love of God now dwells in us. It's possible because the one who loved us enables us to love one another. His death and resurrection changes everything. Now it's possible to love God. And love one so we should not read that passage and say, see this, this command and say, well, yeah, I could never do that and give up. We should look at that and say, Jesus died to make me that kind of a disciple. Jesus rose to defeat the power of sin and to begin conforming me to the image of Christ so that little by little, day by day, I'm becoming more and more like him until we see him face to face and we'll be as he is, the Bible says, free from sin altogether. So if we combined last week's message and this message, and if you weren't here last week, I'd recommend going back and listening to it uh, because it lays out really what our mission as a church to make disciples from, it's not really our mission, it's Matthew 28. It's not catchy, there's no buzzwords. Make disciples, it's very simple. But if we combine that with this, we might say this, we are called to make disciples who love Jesus, who love one another, and who love the lost. See, when we talk about loving our neighbor, there's two kinds of neighbors. You've got two kinds of neighbors. I'm not talking about physical neighbors, but people. You've got two kinds of neighbors. You've got neighbors who are Christians, one another's. You've got neighbors who don't know Jesus, who are lost. So we've got two kinds of people we're to love, those who know the Lord and those who don't. And the Bible addresses how we love both of them. It's all from his love. So we could say we are called to love the Lord. We are called to love one another. We are called to love those who don't yet know the Lord. We are, first of all, to love him. And I think there's an order there, ultimately. I think we're to love him first before we talk about loving one another and before we talk about loving the world. We are to ultimately love him first. How do we love him? Because he first loved us. So we must be gripped by his love for us. We must be gripped by the work of the gospel. We must be gripped by Jesus's, Jesus dying as our substitute and rising to defeat the power of sin. We must be gripped by that. Now, that's not the only picture of the work of the cross in the Bible. There are other pictures. There's the picture of freedom, which is also a picture of love. The Exodus is a picture of what Jesus does in the Bible. The Exodus is taking people out of slavery and freeing them. That's a picture we see in the Bible, but that reflects the love of God too, doesn't it? Um, defeating the powers of Satan is a picture, especially in Colossians we see this, where the death of Jesus is for the purpose of defeating the powers. That's another picture we get, the powers of Satan, the power of demonic powers. That is certainly a picture we get in the Bible as well, but doesn't that reflect the love of God too? God is, Jesus is giving his life to, fruit, to break evil powers off of people's lives that dominate them. That's love. 
But 1 John 4 says that his love is manifest in this, that we see him as a substitute, that we see him as a sacrifice who dies in our place. So that is, that is the predominant picture we see in the Bible of the work of Jesus, is the one who sacrifices himself for us because of the love of God. So first of all, we want to love God in response to his love for us. All your heart, soul, mind, and strength is what he says. Um, that's really what we want to do when we're together. That's what we want to live for. That's why when we gather together, we sing songs about Christ. We sing songs to him. We pray prayers of praise to God for what he's done for us. We pray prayers acknowledging our need and asking for his forgiveness and asking for his help, asking for his care. We, uh, we hear God's word address us, and every Sunday you should expect in some way to hear the gospel, the good news announced from this pulpit, no matter what we're talking about. We always should be able to connect that truth to Jesus Christ and what he's done to inflame love in our hearts for him, to teach our minds so that we see what he did, to empower us as we see who he is and has changed into his image. We find strength to express love to him. So all that we do here is about pointing us firstly to love of God. That's why we read our Bibles. That's why we pray. That's why we meditate. That's why we go to a job during the week and do it as unto the Lord or work out of our home. Do it as unto the Lord because we are doing it out of love for God and for his glory. So all of our life is to orbit around him. All of our purpose to gather as disciples together is that we are following Jesus. We are to love Jesus. We are to look upward to Jesus. That'd be a way to think of these three things too. Looking upward to Christ, looking inward to one another, love one another, and looking outward to love the lost. So loving Jesus, loving one another, loving the lost. That'd be another way of saying it. Secondly, we are called to love one another. When the love of God lands on us, when the love of God stuns us, when the love of God reorients our life and empowers us, it will overflow to our brothers and sisters in Christ. Show me a group of people, a body of believers, a church that really loves one another, really loves one another, prefers one another, cares for one another, bears one another's burdens, and I'll show you a church that first loves Jesus. Because we must see him and know him to have our hearts changed to love one another. So we love him, and it spills out in love for one another. And actually, that's a priority in time. Uh, you know, kind of in order. That's a priority over love for the world. And I'll, I'll, I'll tell you why. There's two reasons I think so. First of all, the scripture makes that point. In Galatians 6, Paul says we are to bear one another's burdens. And then he says, as we have opportunity, 610, let us do good to everyone. And especially those who are in the household of faith. Love everybody, do good, help everybody, but you make sure, he's saying, that those you are walking out your life with in community, the disciples that you were gathered with, building your life together with, that you express love for them. And, and that's just not easy. Loving one another is just not easy. Well, how do you know that? Well, because I read the New Testament, and here's what I found. Every letter written in the New Testament at some point, is about addressing how people get along and calling people to get along. Even, even letters that have very little correction in them, like uh, Philippians, for instance, 
Even in Philippians, when he gets to chapter 4, he doesn't have this big teaching on let's get along. Like in Corinthians, which we went through, man, it's a ton. Every, it's a mess. Everybody is, uh, is at each other. Very little love is being shown to anyone in that church. But even in Philippians, where you don't get very little correction, in chapter 4 he says, I urge Euodia and Syntyche to agree in the Lord. And how'd you like that? You ever been like you were the kid in school and you're talking and the teacher calls you out? Like, how'd you like to be called out for eternity in the word of God like they did? Whoa. Oh, man. Oh, I was just talking in class. And, and, but like, you talk about being on your permanent record. Like, I did something. It's on my permanent record. I don't even know what that is. But I was always warned that I would, it would go on my permanent record when I was a kid. I don't think we warn people with that anymore. When I was a kid, oh, don't do that. It'll go on your permanent record. I've never seen my permanent record. But I will assure you. <laughs> yeah, now it's just on the internet. So that's the permanent record. Everything is in the cloud. It's in the cloud. Uh, so, so you kids be good because it'll show up in the cloud is, is what we say in this generation. But you talk about getting it in the permanent record. This church is great. Be filled with joy. I love you guys. Your partnership. You've been with me. Could these two people get along? Even in that church. So we're called to love one another. That'll never happen if we're not connected to the love of Jesus. And it is not easy, but it is a demonstration of the gospel. Let me tell you, the most beautiful thing is to get to the other side of conflict and difficulty. The most, the most beautiful thing is to get through offense, hurt, sin, whatever, all that stuff. To get through conflict and to get to the other side with a gospel testimony that you and I received forgiveness and extended forgiveness to one another, that's the best place in the world to be, knowing the gospel is having an effect in how we relate. It affects my marriage. So having a marriage, getting through a marriage issue and getting to the sweetness place, the sweet place of fellowship in the Lord or with a brother or sister in the church. Many people miss that because we don't go through that to get to the other side, but the gospel calls us to love one another and press in together for his glory. So why do I say love the church, love one another Christians first? One is because I think the scripture teaches that. But secondly, that's one of the primary ways we reach the world. So if we skip loving one another and just going to loving the lost, we've left one of our main tools. One of our main tools just fell out of our, our, uh, you know, our, our band or fell out of our box and we don't have that tool anymore. Here's what John 13 says. John 13, Jesus says, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another just as I have loved you. So not, not just love your neighbor as you love yourself, but here's the new commandment. Love one another as I have loved you. There's the gospel again. If we don't see how Jesus loved us through his death, we will never love others in the way he calls us to love one another. Just as I've loved you, you also are to love one another by this. All people will know that you're my disciples. If you love, if you have love for one another. So how are you going to love the world in the first place? We're going to love one another. And then as people who don't know Jesus come into this culture, come into this environment and, and experience Christians who genuinely love one another, they'll say something's different about you. You or something's happened to you and that they will know ultimately we're followers of Jesus Christ. So love God, love one another. And lastly, love our neighbors who don't know the Lord. Love our neighbors, those who don't know the Lord. Do you know that's tied as well to Jesus' love for us, I believe. Romans 5.8 says, I know I've given a lot of scripture today, but Romans 5.8 says, God shows his love for us and that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. While we were sinners, Christ died for us. God loved us. Jesus gave his life for us even when we were not real lovable or likable in our attitudes and our actions. Now, we were lovable in the sense we were made in his image. 
but we weren't lovable in the sense that we were committed to following his law. We were rebellion. So our actions were not lovable, even though he loves his image. So God loves us while we were sinners. So how are we supposed to respond to other sinners outside of the church who don't love Jesus, who hate Jesus, who are living for themselves, who are critical of Jesus, who are opposed to Jesus? How are we supposed to relate to them? Well, we're to give the same love to them that God gave to us, compelled, constrained by his love. We go to them as ambassadors for Jesus Christ. We want to love the people that God loves. One of the most powerful parts of the Gospels to me is this, these few places where you get a window when Jesus, where there's a comment about Jesus looking to the crowds. There's one where he says, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. That's how Jesus feels as he looks at people who do not know, the, do not know him. Sheep without a shepherd. It, 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 the word compassion, is, it's an inner word. It means like from the gut is what it means. Jesus, fully God, fully man, from his gut looked out and said his heart was broken because people were wandering without a shepherd. They weren't connected to Jesus. This scribe at this point evidently doesn't get connected to Jesus from what we can see. He remains a sheep without a shepherd. If I could be frank, that can be a real weakness for me. I can get very caught up in, yeah, love God. I can very, get very caught up in, yeah, help Christians and build my life together with other Christians. And I can completely forget about those who are all around me that do not know Jesus. His gut is broken when he, was, when he looked at the crowds. Compassion. His heart is broken for people suffering who don't know him, who don't have one sin forgiven, who don't know life but are walking in death. And I can completely forget that and go about my personal life with God, my family life, my life with other Christians. And by God's kindness, I'm experiencing something of a resurgence in this area, growth. I think we are as a church. We're experiencing a resurgence, a stretching to have a heart for people that do not know God. And as we talk about prepare for the square, I mean, I don't want there to be some cute little line I think it means that we begin to be a people who today, right now, begin to get a compassion for those who don't know the Lord. That we love them because Jesus loved us. Because he gave his life for us, we express that love to those who don't know the Lord. I think it's the biggest stretch and hurdle for us. If we want to be a church that follows the Lord's plan for us, I think this probably, for many of us, not everyone, but for many of us, is the biggest hurdle. It's the biggest hurdle. Because if my heart's going to be stretched for people that don't know the Lord, that means my calendar is going to be affected. And here's what I found about seeking to love and care for people that don't know the Lord, and once they meet the Lord, seeking to care for new believers and make them disciples of Jesus, it is messy. It is draining. It is discouraging. And it is the most exhilarating mission possible. And I feel like that is the biggest stretch for me and for us. That my heart would be stretched out. Like that picture, Stretch Armstrong. If you're my age, you know what that means. If you don't, go look it up on YouTube. Stretch Armstrong. Man, just being pulled out. And finally you get that guy to where, is the rubber going to go any farther? I think the Lord, by his grace, wants to stretch our hearts with discomfort at points but for the joy of showing the love of God to other people. Here's what I honestly think. In a family meeting next week, we're going to toss a goal out to you. 
here's, I'm going to go ahead and tell you the goal. I don't, I don't know. I didn't talk to the whole team about this, but so I'm, I'm not sure I have the permission, but I'm just going to do it. Uh, so here's the goal that we're going to toss this out um, to build a building. We're going to go through all the numbers. We're going to show you a building. We're going to ask for your input on a building. We're going to show you a whole budget, but here, here's a really hard number from like today, 13 months from today, our goal would be to have $700,000 that we do not currently have. Um, and I don't know if you have it. If you do, feel free to give it. But $700,000 that we don't currently have. And I was looking at that number and I was saying, yeah, that's a, that's a scary number. But you know what's way scarier to me? Loving people that don't know the Lord. It's a lot easier to write a check than it is to have a heart broken for the lost and a heart that is praying for the lost and a life that is making room for the lost. That's hard. Writing a check, skipping some things, making a few financial sacrifices, that's a way to show love for the lost because we're investing in a mission to reach the lost. So I don't minimize that. That is a way to sacrifice, to give sacrificially for a mission, is a way to show love for others. Absolutely. But I still think it's a lot easier to stay clean and sterile and write a check than to get dirty and messy. So that's what scares me. And when I say prepare the square stuff, I'm not, I'm not saying it's not about a building. Of course it's about a building to some degree. We're going to show you a building. Yeah, it's about a building to some degree, but it's not ultimately about a building. And I mean that it is ultimately about Lord, what would it look like for me to love the lost like you love them? Lord, for me, what would it look like to love one another in my church like you love them? What would that look? What would that cost? Whatever I think it would cost, add a few zeros to it because that's what it will cost my soul. And at the same time, the grace of God is there for that. The mercy. That's why he created us. That's what it means to be a follower of Jesus. The mercy of God is there. And the power of God is there and the spirit of God is there with us in the stretch. There is nothing more exhilarating than saying, here's what I'm living my life for, for your glory, Lord. Here's what I'm living my life for, to be a disciple and to make disciples who love you. I want to love you, who love one another and who love those who don't know, don't know you. To live that kind of life on purpose as I go to my job, in my neighborhood, with my hobbies, with my finances, with my calendar, with my time with my marriage, with my children, with my small group, living that kind of life together with people and going across the street and going across the world. It's a go that, 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 that taking initiative, taking initiative in my family room and taking initiative across the world, at least to pray and give, if not go, around the world. That, that's a stretch. And I don't think I could flash a number up here that would be more of a stretch than that. So that's the plan to receive the love of God so that we're changed. And in turn, we seek to grow by his grace, to love God with our heart, soul, mind, and strength, to love our neighbor, the neighbor sitting right next to you, the neighbor sitting next to you on a couch on Wednesday night in community group, the neighbor serving in children's ministry with you and the neighbor who lives next door to you, the neighbor who works in the cubicle over the neighbor who is your grandmother across the country that doesn't know the Lord, the neighbor who's an orphan in Africa, the neighbor who is in Frisco, that neighbor as well, the one who does not know the Lord. May God stir us and speak to us and build us and make us and change us increasingly to be those people for his glory. 
regardless of where we meet on Sunday mornings. But may God make us that kind of a people. Let's pray. You've been listening to a message from Grace Church. For more information, visit www.gracechurchfrisco.org.